Good morning, my name's Steve and I'll be bringing us the sermon reading this morning which comes from Isaiah chapter 31 and we'll be reading the whole chapter. Isaiah 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against that wicked nation, against those who help evildoers. But the Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, those who help will stumble. Those who are helped will fall. All will perish together. This is what the Lord says to me. As a lion growls, a great lion over its prey... And though a whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamour. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and will rescue it. Return, you Israelites, to the one you have so greatly revolted against. For in that day, every one of you will reject the idols of silver and gold your sinful hands have made. Assyria will fall by no human sword. A sword, not of mortals, will devour them. They will flee before the sword and their young men will be put to forced labour. Their stronghold will fall because of terror. At the sight of the battle standard, their commanders will panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Well, friends, it's great to be gathered together around God's word. If I haven't met you, my name's Pete Stacey. And uh, we're looking at Isaiah, which is a prophetic book. What do you think of the whole idea of prophecy? For many people today, including some Christians, the idea of prophecy is a bit too much to swallow, that that God could tell someone what is going to happen before it happens. Uh, Logically, we can't know what's going to happen, especially in the big sweep of history and the rise and fall of nations and just way too many variables. No one could control it, let alone kind of guess exactly what's going to happen correctly. And yet from cover to cover, the Bible is chock full of examples of God telling his people and sometimes other nations like Jonah to Nineveh uh, exactly what is going to happen, sometimes in the near future within that generation, Sometimes the distant future, sometimes hundreds of years away, and even what will happen at the end of the age and into eternity. And God usually speaks such messages through a prophet. Do you really think God can do that? Such an idea is considered completely irrational by some people. Naive, laughable at best. Or a dangerous weapon, at worst, used by the the church to manipulate and control people because of some sort of threat of an angry God. It's easy to imagine it being misused. That's why God himself warns against false prophets throughout the Bible who use the title of prophet to, to lead people astray, filling their heads and hearts with lies, saying and claiming things that actually go against God's word. But other times, the danger is actually in the listener. 
because they only want to hear nice messages. For example, just back one chapter, Isaiah says this, The people say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. As we read prophecy in the Bible, here's some questions to think about. Do we really believe that God knows what is going to happen in the future? And if so, do we really want him to tell us? And if so, are we willing to listen to him, trust him, and change the direction of our lives to line up with what he says? As we look at this bit of prophecy, let's pray and ask him for his help. Dear Father in heaven, thank you that you have spoken so clearly to us in your word, telling us what you are like, telling us about things you've done in the past, and telling us about things you have planned for the future. And please forgive us for the times when we've been like those Israelites who listened only to the bits they they wanted to hear and were deaf to anything too confronting or demanding. Lord, we don't want a nice God of our own imagination. We want you, the real true God, who sends the rains from the sky and gives us his word to nourish our soul. Help us see who you really are and that you love us and have our best in mind. Help us trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this chapter is about a very specific crisis for God's people in 701 BC. Very specific. But there's so much here that we can learn and benefit benefit from as well. Now, if you're a note taker, here's a bit of an outline. That's where we're heading today. Verses 1 to 3, trust God because other allies, other things people put their trust in will ultimately fail and fall. Verses 4 and 5, trust God because he loves us. Verses 6 and 7, trust God because, well, in this case, that's not what they were doing at the time. Turn from idols and and return to him. And then verses 8 and 9, trust God because no power or powers can stand against him. Let me give you the basic geography of of this period. Uh, There's a series of the big orange orange landmass at the front. They've already started their campaign. They're heading south. And you can see Egypt down in the bottom corner to uh, the the west there. And you can see that little white dot where Jerusalem is. The Assyrians have conquered right around there. They've wiped out the, the, the northern nation of Israel by this stage. They haven't taken Jerusalem yet. And uh, here's Isaiah and the, and the king of uh, uh, well Judah in, in Jerusalem. And um, if Assyria, big world power at the time, wants to do better with Egypt, big world power at the time, they've got to go through the little land bridge right where Israel and Jerusalem uh, is. They just get caught in the middle. And um, Assyria is, is really on the move and uh, they're heading south. And as the threat of invasion increased, you can see they're already surrounded Jerusalem. God's people cried out for help. 
The trouble is, they cried out to Egypt. <laughs> Look at verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. You know, a crisis so often reveals what's going on in our hearts. I loved your intro, Bill. That was so good. Thanks for that. You know, the crisis kind of exposes what do we turn to in those moments. Uh, They knew that trusting God was the right thing to do. But they had the written record of centuries of people who did or didn't trust God and the consequences that followed those decisions. And they had Isaiah and other prophets warning them to listen to God and trust him. But they faced with, when, when faced with this threat of invasion, they turned to Egypt instead of God. If only the people had read their own scriptures. You know, Psalm 20 verse 7 says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. But they didn't do that. They didn't, they didn't read that. Consider our own responses to cr- conflict or crisis. Do we seek God? Do we cry out to him for help? In preparation this week, I've been personally rebuked by this passage twice this week for trying to sort out a significant problem without stopping to pray about it. I was kicking myself when I realised what I was doing. So, so silly. Not that we don't follow through on action in different ways, but stop and pray. It becomes a conversation, allowing God to, to come into our hearts and help us as the situation changes. And there's nothing inherently sinful about horses or chariots or even someone else's army for that matter. But when we trust in these things and look to them to save us or satisfy our needs without looking to God, that's the problem. When we trust God, he sometimes uses other people, perhaps horses or chariots, as part of his his plan in, in helping us. But the temptation is to look to those things or or people instead of trusting God at all. So often we allow good gifts of God to become idols in our heart. Because we look to those things to satisfy our needs instead of looking to God. Bill, you mentioned TV. Thanks for your honesty, brother. I wonder if we all stood up here to introduce the sermon, what would be the one thing that we would be saying? At that point, you know, in that moment of crisis or just, do, you know, just flat from a, a hectic day, what do we turn to? Do we pray first and then whatever? Um, what, what do we turn to? What are the sorts of things we do trust on? Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's health. Maybe it is a sharp mind and good spelling ability. Maybe it's favourite possessions or a good house. Maybe it's a, the big, big bank balance um, or, or a position of influence and power. All of those things could be taken away in an instant. Would we still trust him? Look again at verse 1. Isaiah confronted Judah with two sins here. The sin of trusting in Egypt and their military power and the sin of not looking to the Holy One of Israel. One of the confession prayers that we use when we have the Lord's Supper has this line in it. We have sinned against you in thought, word and deed... And in what we have 
failed to do. We sin against God by doing wrong things, but we also sin against God when we fail to do right things. Some people call it sins of commission and sins of omission. Now we tend to focus more on the first of those. Uh, But I think it's worth prayerfully reflecting, as a person who claims to follow Jesus, are there things I should be doing to honour him that I'm actually not doing? It's good to think about. And if you've got a husband or wife that loves Jesus or or family members or, or close friends, perhaps trust them enough to ask them that question of yourself to give you a bit of feedback. Verse 3 elaborates on verse 2. Did we look at verse 2 yet? Let's look at verse 2. It's a bit of a shot at Judah's political leaders. They claimed to be wise and they promised things they couldn't deliver and they accused God of not taking action. But verse 2, God is wise. God can bring disaster, not just threaten things, empty words, And God does not take back his words. When he says something, he follows through. When he warns people, it's no empty threat. And in this specific case, he says, he will rise up against that wicked nation, against those who help evildoers. And verse 3 elaborates on that. The Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand... Those who help will stumble. Those who are helped will fall. All will perish together. Like the people of Judah, we easily fall into the trap of thinking that things we can see, like mortals and horses, and are stronger than things we can't see, like God. And so we trust and worship created things instead of the Creator. But Isaiah reminds the people of Judah that while Egypt may appear strong, they're powerless before God. Egypt will perish along with all who trust in them, like a a vine on a trellis. If the trellis goes down, the vine goes with it. The phrase, when the Lord stretches out his hand, that is an ominous echo of the Exodus, isn't it? When the Egyptians were crushed by God's power. In the Red Sea. So far we've been reminded to trust God because he's wise. He keeps his word and no one can stand against him. Then in verses uh, 4 and 5, Isaiah points to God's love for his people with two striking illustrations. Verse 4, this is what the Lord says to me. As a lion growls a great lion over its prey, And though a whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it's not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamour. So the Lord Almighty will come down and do battle on Mount Zion and its heights. And remember that map with the Assyrians surrounded all around Jerusalem. What a picture. As a lion stands over and protects what belongs to him, so the Lord will come down from heaven and stand over and protect Mount Zion, protect Jerusalem. And all God's people within it. No one can threaten him, let alone take what belongs to him. And verse 5 says the same thing, just with a different picture. 
like birds hovering overhead. The Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and will rescue it. Uh, birds hovering overhead. The thir- first thing that comes to my mind is that, that poor Belgian cyclist in the UCI getting dive bombed by the magpie. <laughs> Uh, they, they hover overhead when they're protecting something, don't they? That's why magpies dive bomb. They're protecting their young in the nest. The other thought they came to was like seagulls, you know, when you've just bought some chips. <laughs> um, but actually both images work. Remember the seagulls in Finding Nemo? Mine, 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 mine. Remember, remember that bit? It's so classic. Um, that's what God says about his people. Mine. They're mine. Uh, on the screen, I've got the national bird of Israel. Do you like that? What a wacky looking thing. It's kind of like a cross between a plover and a cockatoo. Imagine having that dive bomb you while you're out for your early morning bike ride. <laughs> wow, it's quite a beat there. The, the point of these verses is this. God, like a lion over its prey or like a, like a, a, a mother a bird will shield his people, protect them, deliver them and rescue them. The last line of verse 5, again, it reminds us of Exodus, doesn't it? God will protect his people in Jerusalem as he protected them in Egypt on the night of the Passover. Others were destroyed whilst his people were protected. Now, this is great news for Judah, isn't it? As the Assyrians are amassing their army not far away, And that's how God loves them. How should they respond? Verse 6. Return, you Israelites, to the one you have so greatly revolted against. Strong language, friends. When our hearts drift from the Lord, let us hear those words. We have revolted against him. Turn back. For in that day, every one of you will reject the idols of silver and gold your sinful hands have made. The word return simply means they've been in the right place before. God's people had obeyed him and had trusted him in the past, but that wasn't the case now. We see this all through the Bible. People joyfully following God and then over time losing their zeal, getting busy, getting tired, getting comfortable, letting go of good habits, backsliding. That's the word you were used to use back in youth group days. Replacing love for God with all sorts of things, the, the idols, if you like, of our hands. And then some sort of crisis or conflict in life comes along. And, uh, and what do we do then? What do we do in that moment? Well, we either come back to God with a renewed passion and zeal, remembering who we are and who he is. Or, and I've seen this too many times, they check out altogether and depart from their faith. That happens again and again. That's why God keeps calling his people back. Reminds me of God's uh, words to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. You have forsaken The love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Friends, look back at this uh, thing on the screen. Yeah, look at that. I wonder where you'd put yourself in that cycle right now. Let's have a look at it. Just think about that. Where are you at? 
Are there things you need to change to be where you need to be and where God wants you to be? What do we need to let go of? Perhaps verse 6 is a word in season for us today. Return. And then in the last couple of verses, God gives his people another powerful reason to trust him. He tells them he's about to destroy the enemies they so greatly fear. This undefeatable Assyrian army that's just been smashing everyone else. Before I read those verses, let me read what the, uh, the, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, had said to the king of Judah who's surrounded. I stuck there in the little island of Jerusalem. The, the king of Assyria said this, Say to King Hezekiah of Judah, Don't let that God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? And then get this bit. Did the gods... Of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors, deliver them. The gods of Gozan, Haran, Rezaph, and the people of Eden who were at Tel Asar. This is not just nation versus nation. This is God versus the gods of all the nations. Now let's read what God says. Into this fear and despair, the one true God says to his people, verses 8 and 9, Assyria will fall By no human sword. Somehow God is just divinely going to take them away. We so easily trust the Egypts in our life that we can see because they seem so real. And we forget to trust the unseen God who is spirit. This is what he's saying. They'll fall by no human sword. A sword not of mortals will devour them. They'll flee before the sword and the young men will be put to forced labor. Their stronghold will fall because of terror. At the sight of the battle standard, their commanders will panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Syria is about to discover if you stick your hand into that fire, you get burned. Listen to what happened. I'll just read the very beginning of the history. This is down in uh, chapter 37. Then the angel of the Lord went out, this is in the middle of the night, and put to death 185,000 of the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. And if you keep reading, he died and he never, never got back there. It's a shocking verse, isn't it? 185,000 human lives. But it shows us who the real God is. He is mighty to save his people. He's mighty to stand against any who defy him, deny his power. Refuse to trust in him. He knows what will happen in the future and he tells us what we need to know to be prepared. Like last week, the heart issue here is where are we going to place our trust? God is worthy of our trust for a whole host of reasons in this chapter. 
Because he will not fail and fall like other things we might trust. Because he's wise, he is trustworthy, he's powerful, he loves and protects his people, and he saves them from their greatest enemy. In Isaiah's day, the greatest enemy was the Assyrians surrounding them. And God rescued them without the assistance of any human agent. Our greatest enemy is the power and penalty of sin. Not just the havoc it wreaks in our life now, but what it means for our eternal destiny. And God has rescued us by sending Jesus to die on the cross so all who trust in him can enjoy peace with God forever. Just as Israel trusted in Egypt, so we might be tempted to trust in, in all kinds of allies. Perhaps things like, well, I'm a pretty good person. I go to church. I grew up in a Christian family. None of those allies can save us for heaven. Only personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. On Friday this week, we spent a minute of silence remembering with great thanks those who gave their lives so that we can enjoy peace and and safety in this country in this lifetime. How much more should we remember our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us on the cross so that all who trust in him can be rescued from our great enemies of sin and death and enjoy the freedom of peace with God for eternity. Amen.